Just a little bit late, Jesse. What were you doing? I was rubbing CBD oil on my neighbor's back. Oh, okay. Moving on. Uh, how are you? <laughs> no, what's the, how, why were you rubbing CBD oil on your neighbor's back? And did you take any video of it? Yes, of course I took video of it. It's going to be up on our Patreon soon. Um, as, as listeners know, I live across the street from an elderly man, an elderly gun toting, NRA supporting, Trump voting, actual racist man. It's my best friend. And uh, he is having some back pain, so he asked me to rub some CBD oil on his shoulders. And so I just went over there, slapped it on my hands, and got to work. So you are not only coddling a racist, you are massaging a racist. Liter- uh, massaging a literal racist. Is this not something that happens in your neighborhood? I cannot remember the last time I massaged a racist in Brooklyn. I'd probably have to go down to like Bay Ridge, so it'd be a bit of a, a bit of a train ride. Well, I guess we just have more diversity of thought here uh, in, on my island. <laughs> Um, what is the name of this racist massaging podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single, and today we are actually going to talk about racism. Racism and genetics. Racism and genetics. First half of the pod, we'll be talking about the latest Central Park Karen, except this one's conveniently the McCarran Park Karen, believe it or not. Uh, Katie, you've got a little bit of dirt on that. It was the latest viral racism or racism question mark incident second half will uh play an interview i did with Paige harden a uh researcher a geneticist who has a really interesting book coming out we'll talk about some of the controversy uh surrounding her and her work which i think gets at a lot of the themes of the show uh we've also got some personals i think we might be wrapping up the personals today we're close uh and some other stuff but first the mccarran park karen katie you've been looking into this I have, Jesse, this was, it was Amy Cooper 2.0 or Amy Cooper Light, perhaps, um, much like all sequels. The sequel is, yeah. ne- I was going to say, the sequel is never as exciting. Yeah. Um, okay. So Jesse, do you remember an episode that we did about a year ago about a guy named Frederick Joseph, who is a black man? He lives in New York. He's a writer. He's in marketing as well. And he, uh, complained on Twitter because he stayed in what he said was a satanic Airbnb. I do. First of all, Frederick Joseph sounds like it should be the name of a founding father. I just wanted to note that. It has very like colonial uh, feel to it. Uh, yes, this was a gentleman who he got to an Airbnb and I believe there was some um, iconography that offended him that he assumed had to do with like satanic rituals. Yeah, there was like a Baphomet. Is that how you pronounce that word? No idea. I, I stay away from Satan, Katie. Yeah, not for me. Smart. Um, so yeah, there was iconography in this, in this Airbnb that he got. It was sort of a rustic country, I think upstate New York home. Um, and there was also some like problematic and, and like frankly, like legitimately <laughs> fucked up art. There was a little statue of a dog fucking a woman. Um, anyway, so the, you're so judgmental, Katie. I know. Um, so. Frederick Joseph, he went and stayed at this place with his fiance and his little brother, and he said that they were really freaked out. And so he demanded that Airbnb return his money. He complained about this instead of like going directly to the, the owner of the, of the Airbnb and asking him to like, I don't know, maybe remove this iconography that was scaring him. He, he made it public. Um, and this of course went viral because it was very funny. He also said that one of his claims was that this stuff was because he's black and his fiance black and his little brother's black. This was like somehow worse. And I was never really clear on the racism angle there. 
I don't know if Satanists have a particular um, animosity towards black people. Is that something that you know about? The Satanists I know are egalitarian. They want everyone to suffer in the eternal hellfires. Yeah, I only know anti-racist uh, Satanists myself, but – <laughs> he complained about this. And then friend of the pod, Anna Merlin, who's a writer for Vice, who is also responsible for the greatest correction in the history of corrections. <laughs> we will post a link to this in the show notes. We won't explain it, but go to, go to the link. Um, Anna Merlin, who is not someone that we would often depend, <laughs> depend on this podcast, <laughs> interviewed the, uh, the Airbnb owner and he took her on a little video tour of his house. And there were things like there was some, uh, Frederick Joseph said that there was some like something on the floor that he thought might be blood, like some, some like something right in the basement. The Airbnb owner showed that this was paint. Um, <laughs> Frederick Joseph complained. I believe he complained about some like, uh, he said that there was like a, a, like a fire circle kind of situation in the yard. And this guy showed that it's like logs around a fire, a fire pit. This. <laughs> Something that would be very common, not necessarily used for human sacrifice. Um, and so Anna Merlin read this piece. She asked him for comment. He didn't get back to her. And then, and the piece sort of makes fun of the guy, which she deserved. And then after the piece went up, he accused her of racism because she centered the voice of the white man when he didn't return her request for comment. Look, fair's fair. I, I, as I think we said at the time, this provided really clear evidence Anna Merlin is not only a racist, but I'd say like a hardened, lifelong racist. I think that's probably true. I think we should check her her membership on the KKK rules right now. Um, so so Anna Merlin did this this interview with the guy. He complains about it, and I had forgotten about him until this week. Yes, he 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 popped up in a viral video that he himself posted. That maybe we should just drop. It's like thirty seconds. We should probably just drop it here, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. I invite everyone. Stay in our. Stay in our hood. That's it. I'm sorry. What? Stay in our hood. Stay in our hood. You just told us. You just told us to leave the dog park and stay in our hood. Oh my god! Did you just say that's me? Shit. Wow. Oh, that's funny. Wow. The, wow. the Karen is in the white. There's, I'm sorry. You were right here. Watch this entire thing. Did she just not stand here and tell us to stay in our hood? She did. She just told you just told us. So it's just there, there's a little bit of vagueness here, but it's clearly meant to get people outraged, right? Right. So this was taken at a dog park at a at a, at a corner of a McCarran Park where there's apparently a dog park, and so we don't know what happened to lead up to this incident. There's no context at all. And this is in this is in sort of like prime uh, douchey gentrified Williamsburg, I should add. So this is where you live? <laughs> no, I live in a way cooler and hipper uh, location that way we'll keep undisclosed. Yeah. Um. So it, so this is the aftermath of the incident. It's not the incident itself. You can see her, she flips it. The woman here, we know now that her name is is Emma Sarley. She flips him off. She seems to be a little bit drunk in the the video. I might be projecting here, but she's like seems a little bit tipsy. Um, I don't know how often people go to the dog park tipsy, but she might have been. Maybe she wasn't. Maybe she just slurs a little bit. Um, and then there's a bystander who who basically confirms Frederick Joseph's account of this, who says, uh, "Yes, yeah, she did say." Go back to your hood. What we don't know is why she said, why she said this. So there's been some subsequent reporting on this. Camille Foster in particular has really dug into the story and he, he spoke to some bystanders and some other people who were involved in this. And what Camille has uncovered is that the incident that led up to this was basically there was a dog at the dog park that was being aggressive towards other dogs. Emma assumed that it was Frederick Joseph's dog. 
at this point, it looks like it probably wasn't his dog, but she assumed that this dog that was being aggressive was his dog. So she had this altercation with him. He apparently said, according to witnesses who were there, that he was that he lives in Long Island City, so this wasn't his neighborhood. And that's when she said, go back to your hood. Well, go back to your hood. Um, it doesn't sound good. For sure. She didn't say, she didn't say like, go back to your neighborhood. She said hood, which makes it sort of, I don't know. It's like, for some reason that seems more racist. <laughs> Not that she's saying like, go back to the hood, go back to the ghetto, but for but yeah. just like poor choice of words. You're not supposed to drop the neighbor. Right, right. You're not supposed to use the H word uh, in the context of a black person. It is sort of funny that Long Island City is like not not far off from Williamsburg, both geographically and it's also like glassy condos and very rich people. So there's no there are no like actual low income neighborhoods involved here, just to be clear. Yeah, the, this is where Amazon was going to put their headquarters, right? Yeah. Yeah. But when Frederick posted, Frederick Joseph posted this video, he didn't add any of this context. He just posted the video and he said he directed his followers to figure out who this woman is. They quickly did it. It is apparently not hard to figure out who people are on the internet. And when he figured out who he, who she is, he figured out where she works. And then he went and tagged the company, a company called Bevy, which is some sort of tech company, as well as the CEO for the company. Within hours, Emma Sarley had been fired. Yeah, and the, the CEO just comes across as like the worst because he, he sort of publicly broadcasts this great deed he was doing. And then after firing her, he basically said like he'd love to find a way to bring them together and resolve this after firing her. Yeah. I just, his, I found his role in this really dispiriting, but, uh, he's a CEO type. So I guess I shouldn't be that surprised that he responded that way to public pressure. You know, there is one interesting element here. He's a CEO type. He's a Mormon CEO. Oh, is he? Yeah. So apparently this he, – he said – at some point he said – he was getting called out for this. Frederick Joseph and he were both getting called out for this. And at one point he said something like, sometimes you just have to do the right thing. And this was apparently some reference to his sort of – his spirituality, his religion. But it <laughs> doesn't – it doesn't look – nobody knows he's fucking Mormon. That famous, like line, his, that famous right? line from the Book of Mormon, sometimes you just got to do the right thing. <laughs> Yes, it was a uh, did Spike Lee do that Mormon movie? Do the yep. right thing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um okay, so Emma Sarley is fired. Frederick Joseph, people start digging in into his tweets and it turns out that surprise surprise, he has a history of making allegations like this. And there are some fucking bizarre ones. Like at one point he said that he was on a United fl- uh, uh, flight and he took a picture of a woman. She was wearing socks, but she had her feet like up on the, up on like a, tr- like on the back, the seat back in front of her. And he took a picture of this, posted it. And then he said that United paid this woman a thousand dollars, that she wouldn't take her, her feet down. And then United paid her a thousand dollars to do it. Wait, paid her a thousand dollars to do what? Put her feet down. United paid. <laughs> Wait, so uh, I, it's so hard to even process this. So the, the steward or stewardess comes over, put your feet down. She says, no. Okay, we'll give you $1,000 to put your feet down. That's what he said happened. And then United came out and said that didn't happen. And was he trying to say, like, put this I, – I say this just because I know a little bit about his online persona. He's trying to do this like a white privilege thing, like white women get paid just to put their feet down. Yeah, and this isn't the only time that he's done this, specifically on a plane. Like, at one point, he also posted a photo of a white guy who was sleeping, like, laid out. He had a whole row to himself, and so he was laying down. And he said, like, a black man could never – a black person could never get away for, get away with this, which – With lying down on a train? On an airplane. If they had the – 
I, sorry. I, it's so, I'm so torn on this because they're obvious. It's like he thinks that if, if, if a black person was sitting in an empty row, they wouldn't be allowed to lie down. That's the claim. Yes. Okay. Um, it's like it feels like a trap because you, <laughs> because you want to say that's obviously not true. But then it's also obviously the case that there have been horrible – I mean in New York City, there have been incidents of like people being arrested for putting their feet up on the train. The law can be horrible. I just – I don't think on a flight with an – I've never seen a situation where someone's in an empty row and they're not allowed to lie down unless there's like turbulence or some shit. No, that's like standard behavior on an airplane and it doesn't matter what your race is. Anybody can lie down on an airplane. And if somebody was banned from lying down, like taking up three seats lying down, we'd probably hear about it. I love the thousand dollars to put your. I'm going to try that the next time I'm on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> I heard. <laughs> pay me. Yeah. Pay. I heard you could do this. Um, it, I saw another one. So he seems to post like little snippets of video or or photographs that don't actually prove anything. Like there was one where he had this like weird off angle photo of a dog, and he's like, a woman with a dog just yelled at me for like leaning on a car and asked me if it was my car. And there's just no hard evidence anything actually happened. Because it's just accompanied by a photo of a dog. Like he saw a dog. He's he's a very weird guy. And this is a pattern of behavior with him. He also you found. Uh, oh, little, so he can I yeah, read this? explain this. My absolute favorite thing when I was like re reminding myself who this guy was was he has a book called The Black Friend. He, he's an author and entrepreneur. He's like a you know top whatever under thirty, very successful activist entrepreneur type. His big thing was raising. A, a sickening amount of money to send poor black kids to see the Black Panther, which I don't know, like <laughs> in terms of good uses of a big fundraising effort, like Jesse visibility is very important. It just it was the most sort of bougie activist. Anyway, um, I I found an article the New York Times uh, I think it was the book section I'll just read this directly the, the book was called The Black Friend here's what the author of the piece said with some quotes from him reception of The Black Friend has been warm but disheartening Joseph says quote we pitched various outlets to let me speak about the book and people are like well we just had a black guy on we've maxed our quota of black for the next few months but you've had 25 white guys to date he has revamped his next book proposal five times quote Every single white editor said they couldn't figure out how to sell it and it would probably be better someplace else. But the writing is electric. <laughs> so other than him either – it's hard to tell if he's calling his own writing electric or saying editors have been saying that. The idea this, – this article was from November, December of 2020 – that a major media outlet would say – We've had too many black authors lately. We don't want to have you on. That that makes the thousand dollars to put your feet down story look credible. Well, and the fact that his book sold his the black uh, the black friend or whatever it's called that was a bestseller, right? Yeah, yeah, it sold very well. It is if you know anything about media, the idea that. And I, I want to be careful here because you always need to keep two things in your head at the same time. One is there are structural obstacles to becoming an author. Like I, I'm an author. That's partly because I had a lot of resources growing up. I could do unpaid internships. It's a long chain that stretches back to when I was like 22, just out of college. That's all true. And white people are more likely to be wealthy. But in 2021 media, the idea that outlets are, are trying to strictly limit the black voices on their shows, especially authors is, is fucking insane. So I said on Twitter, I really think he's just lying about this. I do not think he ever heard from an outlet anything about a quota. I, I think it's, it's, he, his audience is the sort of person who would buy 
uh, Robin D'Angelo style books. And this is like a caricature of what white liberals think is going on in publishing when the truth is a lot more complicated. And if this had happened, do you think that he wouldn't have whipped out his phone immediately and posted this posted this I'm, that's the most ridiculous part this guy is constantly calling out every every incident he has and apparently he's the most unlucky guy in new york because he's being hate crime constantly the, the idea that he would not call out an outlet that did this is just he's he's i think he's a liar and he also he said in the aftermath of this this video this latest karen video that he posted with emma sarley he said that she threatened to call the police nobody else apparently heard this she denies that this happened but that of course makes his argument that what she did is racist much stronger will people ever stop just fucking instantly retweeting these videos i i I know that i mean it wasn't as bad this time right but it seems like a lot of people still did it a lot of people still did it she still got fired i don't think it was as bad this time in part because maybe it's just fatigue like we've we've seen this story before but also you had you had people like hannah nicole jones she you just did it nicole hannah nicole hannah jones she commented on this and she said it didn't sit sit right with her um which i like credit where it's due she's it shouldn't sit right with her. There's a fucking credit to her. Yeah. Credit to Anna Merlin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> credit to Noah Verlaski. Changing hearts and minds. Yeah. <laughs> Noah Verlaski has been great on this. So I do, I do get the sense that people are sort of coming to their senses about things like this because there's always more to the story, and I think a lot of people have realized that. We should have all realized that after the Covington thing, or the Jesse Smollett thing, or the Amy Cooper thing. Um, but of course, like it, it reminds me of the most of that guy in Seattle who kept yeah. posting videos where someone just said it was. He was apparently just wandering around Seattle every day. White women and Asian women were calling him the N word. Right. He never caught that on camera, but he caught the immediate aftermath. The there's something to the like the supply demand element of like explicitly racist incidents. <laughs> just we the number more. of them that have turned out to be a little bit more complicated than they first appear, or they end up being hoaxes. Like there was a student a while back. I can't remember where this was, but uh, a young woman who scrawled like racial slurs on her body and said that she was attacked and it was her. Do you remember this one? Vaguely. Yeah. It was very depressing. Yeah. So if there's not enough uh, racial incidents, you can always just create your own. It's being proactive. I'm going to just like paint some scratches on my face and claim that neighborhood toughs pushed me down and scrawled <laughs> podcaster on my forehead. <laughs> And on International Podcasting Month. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So this was covered, of course, in the press. Camille Foster found an interview from the local CBS station. They interviewed both Frederick Joseph and this bystander. What they didn't, what CBS local news didn't include was the part of the video clips, the part of their own interviews where both the bystander and Frederick Joseph said that he had said that he was from Long Island City. They cut that out. Camille got in touch with the reporter from CBS News. She won't talk to him. He texted her. She sent back a, a bitchy email or a, a bitchy text. Uh, he res- he followed up and said, like, I'm trying to clarify some things on the reporting. Never responded. He called. He <laughs> called the station. Couldn't That's get anybody awesome. to talk to him. Yeah. So he did actual digging on this. That looks really bad for them if they left left out this pertinent uh, this pertinent piece of info. This doesn't mean that the woman isn't racist. But if someone says, I don't live here, I live in Long Island City, and the next reaction is, we'll go back to your hood in a heated a heated interaction, I do think that that just adds a lot more context and you can't automatically assume that what she was saying was because of his race. Yeah. Uh, Frederick Joseph, I uh, – yeah, not a, not a good dude. I, I think there's like a pretty rich – 
it's like a pretty good ecosystem for grifters right now because there's such a demand for these racial outrage stories. And I, I don't think it surprised anyone that figures like him are emerging. Okay. So I talked to a former coworker of his. He worked – I don't know if he still does, but he at some point was working at this site. It's a, basically an Instagram page called The Progressivist. And this woman that I spoke to, her name's Christina Berry. And uh, when she worked with him, she was sort of a kind of basic influencer, liberal, uh, like believed sort of all of the narratives that she had that she absorbs specifically about race and things like this and then at one point when she was working with him she made a little video and this is a weird business so it's an instagram page it's owned by an australian couple and it's a lot of outrage stories and things that are designed to go viral and at one point she made some so she's a content creator and so is he and at one point she made some video or some post where she referred to candace owens as clandis owens <laughs> like ku klux klan <laughs> Yeah, it was a pretty good joke. And Frederick Joseph said that this was racist and he made this video about why this was racist and they took down her video and apologized for it. And so she was like humiliated by this experience and also confused by it because like, wait, we're not allowed to make fun of Republicans. This whole site is based on making fun of Republicans. And it had this pretty remarkable impact on her. So ultimately she quit her job and she said that this was big. She said, it was because of Fred that I quit. Wow. And so she quits her job and she's goes through this sort of destabilizing experience where she's realizing that the things that she always believed might not be correct. And so she started like looking for heterodox information and she stumbled across FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which is a fairly new organization. Camille Foster's on the board. Barry Weiss is on the board, a bunch of other friends of the podcast. And she's now working for them. And this also changed her politically. She's basically a centrist now. Um, so this guy, in his effort to like, like reform white people, has had the actual, the opposite, opposite impact. He has driven someone towards the right. This woman got herzogged, it sounds like. Yes. So he has, so he is, if he, as an activist, his track record doesn't appear to be very good. I want to tell you one more thing she told me. This is a quote from her. I asked what she thought when she saw the video that he posted of the woman in the park, and she said, she wasn't surprised. This is a quote. It's what he does. He sets traps for people so he can create content off of them. She said, I was like, oh, he's at it again. He's so focused on trying to make it and elevate his own platform that he's constantly looking for an opportunity to cry racism so he can profit from it. It's really gross, man, because we like we live in a world with a lot of fucked up shit still going on for someone like this to like uh, it just doesn't it doesn't help. No. And what he, what has he accomplished? He got a woman fired from her job, a young woman fired from her job. I'm sure he'll sell some books from it. Yeah. Yeah. So good for him. Congratulations, Frederick Joseph. All right. We will be back in a moment. Katie, it's time for us to do an ad for the tushy line of sleek modern bidet attachments, but I've got a problem. What's that, Jesse? I'm sort of squeamish about the language required to talk about a bidet. I, I feel like you have more of a potty mouth than I do, and that that makes it harder for me to take the lead on these ads. Well, what do you want to do about it? Can I present you with some euphemisms I've come up with to describe the experience of using the tushy modern bidet attachment, and you can rank each of them from zero butt cheeks to two butt cheeks? <sighs> I will do this for you, Jesse, yes. Euphemism one. Taking the tea train to Cleansville. Zero butt cheeks. Euphemism two. Giving yourself that fresh feeling, and everything after this is all caps. Giving yourself that fresh feeling down there in the back. Zero butt cheeks. All right, last one. Euphemism three. Executing a clean withdrawal from Afghanistan. <laughs> okay, that one's pretty good. Two butt cheeks for that one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you want to execute a clean withdrawal from Afghanistan, <laughs> try the tushy modern bidet attachment. <laughs> 
Start washing with a tushy bidet for a better clean. Go to hellotushy.com slash barpod to get 10% off plus free shipping. This is a special offer for our listeners at hellotushy.com slash barpod for 10% off. And then after you buy and install your tushy, show it off. Tag us and hellotushy on Instagram. Although don't tag us because we don't have an Instagram. Have fun. <laughs> That's hellotushy.com slash barpod. Okay, just our usual housekeeping. You can always reach us at blockreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We have a subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blocked and reported. What else, Katie? Jesse, we have a premium subscriber program. What? Currently, yes, currently at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. If you go there and you give us just $5 a month, you get three extra episodes of this podcast every month. And there are a bunch of other perks you also get. We do like video hangouts, Katie. I think you've been blacked out for all of them, but they're really fun. Yes, that's right. Um, you get discounts on merch, which you can get at barpod.org for your hoodies, your tote bags, your mugs, all of your barpod needs. That's patreon.com slash blocked and reported. The other thing uh, we're doing that I guess we're wrapping up now is Barpod Personals. These are closed. Unfortunately, we didn't make it clear in some of our back episodes like when we were closing this. So I think we're still getting them. As of the end of August, you could not submit them. But these are folks looking for love. We're going to read, I think, the last batch now. If you like what you hear, email Katie at barpodpersonals at gmail.com with the person you want to connect with, and she will connect you. Our goal is just for a positive uh, M to M ratio. That's marriages to murders. We want to generate more marriages than murders, ideally. You know, and I think we might actually be on our way. I got this email today. Wow, I wasn't expecting anything at all to come of this, but I ended up meeting a totally lovely person. We are bringing people together, Jesse. That is very exciting. I hope they stay together. I hope we are uh, we are at the wedding. After this is over, we could we should maybe start the bar pod divorce service legal service. <laughs> Logical next step. All right. Straight man, early 30s software engineer in a southern Minneapolis suburb, walking distance from uptown. Very specific. Likes Dungeons and Dragons, beer, Terry Pratchett, sci-fi, sharing and listening to interesting stories. Inexplicably somehow still believes most humans are mostly decent most of the time. I can't endorse that. Seeking woman, early 30s or late 20s. Lesbian 26 NYC seeks witty professional type with an appreciation for period dramas, nature, and a plethora of good restaurants in the city. Let's meet for coffee and discuss the latest novel you bought in a used bookstore and complain about our workloads. 22-year-old straight male based in San Fran, hopefully moving to D.C. soon. Recent graduate of a soon-to-be defunct cosmopolitan elitist liberal arts college based in Singapore. Hiking, making and listening to music, fancy cocktails, independent media of all times. I also like to write and think I'm decent at it, i.e. not as good as Katie but better than Jesse. Thank you. <laughs> I'm ideally looking for an older woman to groom and or mentor me. But a healthy, supportive relationship with a woman my own age would be cool too. Also open to making friends. Gross. And if anyone wants to give me a job, that would be great as well. Nag Mac Fiegel. I don't know what that means, but uh, anyway. Lifetime learner and maker in Boston, Massachusetts area, seeking to learn more about myself and the world. I'm interested in interesting conversations with anyone who can teach me or change my mind and is willing to have their mind changed as well. A romantic relationship could develop with a carrier of large human gametes. I have the small human gametes. I'm not trying to be sizes, but data shows that some gametes are larger than others. I like grilling, playing RPGs, zombie movies, sketching and photography, chilling and discussing astronomy, anatomy, epistemology, and other ologies. Is there a 35 to 45 straight, single, non-woke, but socially conscious man in Mexico City? Barpod, help me find him. I'm a 36-year-old Mexican feminist activist turned cynical government worker. I love dogs, books, and living in a city with no winter. 
Mexico City is fucking awesome. Let's get coffee and walk around while we roll our eyes at people trying to make Latinx happen. Swordless in Seattle, 26-year-old straight Catholic guy with all of the unp- unpopular takes that implies. Looking for a problematic dungeon girlfriend to my imbiphobic dungeon boyfriend. If you're a Seattle-based woman who likes spiking, Christian existential- existentialism, and awful horror movies, we might just be a match. Small bum, medium tits, big heart. <laughs> I want to add <laughs> can't lose to that. <laughs> almost, 30, <laughs> almost 30 women seeking man in Knoxville, Tennessee, likes hiking and mild socializing but wants you to make it happen looking for someone to have long conversations with about the state of the world light exercise combats baking habit favorable genetics therapy twice a week unfavorable genetics is very honest homeowner works out as a pricing analyst dream job is s-a-h-m what does that mean katie stay at home mom stay at home mom stay at home birthing person stay at s-a-b-p yes we're using gender inclusive language two dogs one cat zero kids tired of being that independent woman eco-fascist turf and problematic neo-monarchist seeking unicorn for mental and physical partnership in wisconsin hobbies and interests include working out memento mori and eking out a living in a desperate bid to escape the pmc i'm not sure if that person wants a man or a woman or that person is a man or yeah. a woman well, they call themselves a turf, so they're probably a woman or a, a, a vagina haver. Probably. Hashtag not your tech bro. I'm a straight 32-year-old male in Vancouver. I work in IT, but I wouldn't call myself a tech bro. I'm looking for friendship and a relationship. My likes, Larry David-style comedy, cooking bastardized dishes from other bastardized dishes from other people's culture, talking to dogs I made in the street without making eye contact with their owners, discussing meta-ethics on Twitter, dislikes, hyperbolic rhetoric of all kinds, drawings of octopuses with mouths in the wrong place, heights, and discussing meta-ethics on Twitter. The only other lesbian podcaster, 35-year-old lesbian comedian and podcaster in Austin who'd love to connect with other BarPod listeners to see if any of y'all would like to be the guest on my Wrong Questions Only podcast. So this was, looks like less of a, less of a love connection thing. <laughs> More of an ad. <laughs> a politically thing. non-binary podcast that's solving one culture war battle per season, season one gender, especially if you identify as trans, detans, or non-binary, or if you just have strong opinions and are funny. Also, I'm Polly and travel all over for stand-up in case you are hearts, uh, you are a hot, smart, funny woman and want to come see me do stand-up and or get together. Bonus points if you love hip-hop musicals and or have read uh, Civilized to Death. Instagram is Ellen DeGenderless, so they don't have to go. Yeah, through. you can reach out to them directly. You don't have to go through us. I do. That's ballsy to be like, I want you to come see me do stand up. Yeah, I, I know who this person is on Twitter. She's uh, she is cute and funny. Nice, hopeful and happy valley. 34-year-old renaissance man in central PA who enjoys music, storytelling, nature, and conversational tangents, seeking lady who wants to start a family together. I have a neat but mostly useless master's degree, a house, a good career, and a cat. Let's pick out plans for the pollinator garden together. Social cleansing. Currently in a relationship, so I figured I'd miss out on the phone. Then I asked myself, why not a friendship personal? If you're near Louisville and you think that sounds cool, then more cool than cringe, keep listening. 40-year-old gay man and open to whoever likes technology, video games, hiking, futurism, and futilely complaining about politics. Seems like the pandemic figuratively killed off what was left in my social circle. If anyone still has enough enthusiasm to hang out outside social media, contact me. Okay, I lied. We're not done done. I think we have like four or five left, but we'll leave those to the next episode. Uh, I wish everyone their luck in finding love and or sex and or murder victims. Good luck. Oh, wait, we have a we have another thing, Jesse. Yes, we are hiring. We are going to be bosses. Can you fucking believe that? This is so many lawsuits waiting to happen. We're looking for basically an editorial assistant. It'll be a mix of admin and research stuff. This is not a full-time job. It is about eight to 10 hours a week. We're basically pegging it to 40 hours a month total, uh, $25 an hour. So it's about a grand a month um, for a very part-time job. We think it'll be fun. It'll be a learning experience. We're going to have a lot of 
random work for you to do ranging from like, go find us interesting stories, go research stories. We've already identified some admin stuff. What am I missing? What's the policy on having our assistant rub CBD oil on our shoulders? Completely. (laughs) Completely inappropriate, Katie. Come on. Now, here's a list of which uh, religions and ethnicities will accept. Uh, yeah, if you guys are interested in applying, how do you how do you apply? Uh, we'll include a link in the show notes to instructions. It's basically just a resume and a short sort of written prompt. Have we gotten a bunch of applications so far, Jesse? We have. They're incredible. We need an assistant to go through the applications for us. We need to hire someone. Yeah, we're also to hiring for an editorial assistant. Assistant. <laughs> All right. Should we move on to the interview? Yes. So the this last part of this uh, episode, I interviewed Paige Harden. She's a psychologist at the University of Texas Austin. Uh, she has uh, her first book out. It's called "The Genetic Lottery: Why DNA Matters for Social Equality." This is a fascinating subject, and and she's really like anyone who tries to connect DNA to life outcomes. She's gotten some really heavy criticism. People will basically call you a eugenicist if you do this kind of research, but but it's very interesting and important. Uh, I wrote a little bit of my newsletter about her book. It's a great book. Um, so yeah, there, there's if folks want to learn more about the background here, there's an excellent article in the New Yorker by Gideon Lewis Krauss. So yeah, I mean the the just to situate people and you'll see this if you read the the New York article but basically the idea is if if you say the evidence suggests that our genes really do play a significant impact in determining things like our educational attainment or our intelligence in other words and various aspects of our personality but but people don't want to hear that both because it just like it rubs them the wrong way sort of morally they think that that's like something Nazis believe um it's not really coherent in my view to be like some kinds of luck are okay. Like being born into a wealthy family, that's okay to talk about, but it's not okay to talk about being born with good genes. This is also a point Freddie DeBoer made. We actually interviewed him or I did on this podcast about his book. So it's just like a really interesting example of how there's some, to me, to my mind, pretty harmful science denialism on the left. And Paige, the first X minutes of the interview are about genetics, but we also get into like her experiences navigating Twitter as a first time author. And, and there was a lot of similarity with my own. I'm not sure she would relish that comparison, but just like the way everyone intentionally misreads everyone and, and how exhausting that is. And then how that sort of like blights the, uh, intellectual landscape. I, I, I just thought this was an inter- interesting interview. I'm glad I got to talk to her. So yeah, uh, Paige is, is great. She's like a brilliant young researcher. I mean, I say young, like my age, youngish, and, uh, she's endured a huge amount of Twitter bullshit that the New York article talks about her, like losing access to a research grant. And, and yep, I'll be curious what people think when you hear the interview. All right, let's get to that. Paige Harden, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. You are the author of The Genetic Lottery, Why DNA Matters for Social Equity. Social for equality. equality. <laughs> We're off Which to is, a very good start. I, you know, it's a Freudian slip right off the beginning. We could talk about that, equality versus equity, if you want. This is the amount of research and preparation that goes into this show. You would not believe. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, this is an annoying question for any author, I know, because I've answered. But just give folks completely unfamiliar with your work the elevator pitch, and then we'll get into some of the more specific stuff. Yeah, so I'm a psychologist by training, and I study the influence of genetics on child and adolescent development. So the book is about 
what genes did you inherit and how they might influence how you do in school, your personality, your risk for mental illness, um, even how much money you make, and how we make sense of that information in terms of our public discourse about equality, what it means, how to achieve it, what do we do with genetics in a way that's not eugenic. And, and your argument is that these influences, as far as we can tell, they are not small uh, on, on most of these crucial measures. Yes. So my argument is that they, they're not everything, but they're not ignorable. That we see for most of the dimensions of how people's lives turn out differently. Um, education, physical health, psychological well-being, that the influence of genetics is, in most cases, about as important as um, some of the other dimensions of inequality that we're used to thinking about, maybe, like family socioeconomic status or family environment. And so I'm not trying to say that genetics is everything. I'm simply saying it's part of the, you know, it's a piece of the puzzle that we should be taking seriously, both scientifically when we're trying to figure out, you know, what causes what in children's lives. Um, but then also politically and in our conversation about what equality means, what it looks like. Um, I want us to move away from this idea that um, there's some, it's a, it's somehow bad news for liberals. If we found out that genetics influences things Um Rather, it's a way of just understanding how the world is operating with more knowledge about how the world is operating being a um, a useful precondition for figuring out how to change it towards desired ends. So so one bit of recent sort of scientific history I, I only recently learned about, both from your book and, and a conversation with another geneticist, was the shift from sort of – uh, so-called candidate gene studies to to GWAS, and and mm-hmm. I just wanted to quickly go over this because it's I think it's pretty important. The, the, tell me if I have the basic storyline right. Fairly recently, uh, people in positions like yours thought that there was a lot of potential to find like the smart gene or a small handful yeah. of individual genes that basically made people smart or made them aggressive or made them whatever. And there was actually a body of research that was looking pretty positive. And then this whole project more or less collapsed, right? Yeah. It's interesting to think about who were the people involved. Um, so one way to think about it is like in the 80s, 80s and 90s, the dominant paradigm in behavioral genetics, so the study of genetic influence on behavior, was family studies, right? It wasn't measuring anything about DNA at all because we weren't really able to do that. It was um, twins or siblings or adoptees as the primary research tools. And then in the early 2000s, as people were able to measure the genotype directly, particularly in psychology, there was this fervor for the candidate gene study, which was focusing on single DNA variants um, in genes that had some sort of hypothesized theoretical connection to what you're studying. So for instance, in the case of depression, we treat depression using drugs that affect serotonin. So let's look at genetic variants in genes that affect serotonin in the brain, like that that, that kind of story. Um, What's interesting is that those two groups of people, the behavior geneticists of the kind of the 80s and 90s who did the twin studies and the, the most fervent advocates of the candidate gene study weren't necessarily the same research groups. Um, like I went on the job market in 2008, 2008, 2009, 
And um, in almost every university interview that I had, someone asked me, why do you still do twin studies? Why aren't you doing this candidate gene research? And, you know, my answer was like, I don't really find this work super satisfying. I don't really feel like this is going to be pushing the ball forward seemed like kind of a, a very unorthodox view amongst a lot of psychologists at the time. Um, and then it turns out that those candidate gene studies were really flawed um, for a lot of reasons that we can go into. And then at the same time, um, there was with our ability to genotype people on millions of variants more cheaply came the rise of a methodology that I talk about in the book, which is this genome-wide association study, which is basically like not trying to come up with some story like, oh, well, serotonin's involved in depression, so I'm going to look at serotonin genes. But instead, it's just measuring variants, you know, scattered throughout the entire genome um, and doing this very hypothesis-free test of association between all the things that you've measured genetically in, the, in your outcome of interest. Um, and a big part of the reason why the candidates gene studies didn't work, we now understand on the basis of GWAS, which is that any one genetic variant has an infinitesimally small effect. So we're almost for any, anything that psychologists are interested in, um, depression, education, intelligence, personality. There's not one gene. There's not five genes. There's not 10 genes. There's thousands of genetic variants, each of which have itty bitty bitty tiny effects that add up together into something meaningful. If you ask people like, is intelligence heritable? Like, is it more or less heritable than like personality or political beliefs? You know, like the wisdom of crowds, like people are not perfectly perfectly accurate, but like they have a general sense of it. So, you know, on average, lay Americans think that genes influence human lives. And it doesn't really break down very much according to like political ideology. Like you don't see huge differences between Democrats and Republicans or self-described liberals versus conservatives. Um, but in the academy, right, like in like amongst the group of people that I spend my professional time with, who are not average Americans, right? Like they're people with PhDs in the social sciences. They just have superior genes. <laughs> that, you know, it's this, like, it's this, um, you see, like you are the people who are the, at the top of an educational hierarchy and also the people most likely to say that your genetics have nothing to do with you being <laughs> the top of an academic hierarchy. Right. And I just feel, I just feel like we should be curious about that. Right. Like, I feel like that's just like a, an interesting observation about a disjuncture between the way that academics see the world versus late audiences see the world in which late audiences like might actually be more accurate. Yeah. Um, and how that perception amongst academics kind of shapes the whole you know, the terms of the debate in a way that I think is, is um, like, that I think we should be curious about like how that's shaping it. I mean, one of the, one of the things interesting about your career and your situation is like you do the sort of work that could be co-opted by the right. And you're, you're very cognizant of that and you speak out against it. Um, but, but like what, what you just said that academic opinion is very much out of step in your area with sort of lay mm -hmm. public opinion. I mean, I agree with that completely on multiple fronts, but isn't that like, <laughs> imagine capital letters as I'm saying that the sort of thing a right winger would say. 
Um, it's funny. Like a right winger. I feel like the long, yeah, I've just, I feel like the longer I've been having this, these conversations around the book, the more, the less I, the less I feel confident in even being able to characterize something as like a right wing view or a left wing view. And also like sometimes when I talk to my colleagues, I'm like, have you ever like met a Trump voter? Like, do you know conservatives in your life? Yeah. <laughs> like real life ones? Um, so like, yes, in the sense that I think like, if you look at surveys, there are definitely ideological differences in like sort of skepticism about the university. Um, that's interesting. Is that the sort of thing that right wingers would say? Well, I just mean, I mean, what yeah. you, what you said, and, and I've warmed to this view too, and I thought it was less true five or six years ago, uh, that trope that elite mm-hmm. academics are out of step with what most normal people believe. I, you know, I think it is fair to say yeah. it's a right wing trope. I just, I think I happen <laughs> to in many ways agree with it. It sounds like you do too. Yeah. Okay. It's funny because I also feel like so many of the conversations around the book, this is really salient to me, is, um, you know, you like you write something and you have in your idea in your head, like, okay, well, this is what I'm going to get pushed back on. And, you know, for me, it was very much like, okay, what are all the like technical details? Um, and instead, so much of the commentary and the conversation in the aftermath has been around this, like, whose side are these ideas on? Yeah. Like, um, like this, te- this tendency to sort of try to see, like categorize, categorize observations as, as being on this team or on this team or something that the other team needs to hear, but not me. Yeah. And I think particularly given like the, just like the massive fragmentation that's happening in both the right wing and the left wing in America today, like one, that's just empirically difficult. Um, but two, uh, I, I find just that, that habit a little bit corrosive, like an observation can be true and true observations sometimes seem to help the other team, but categorizing observations in terms of which team they help feels like a, um, a dangerous road to be walking down too far. I mean, to me, I, I always encounter it as some version of like a bad person could use that argument for bad purposes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the thing is a bad person can use literally any argument and also doesn't need argument or observations about the real world in order to do bad things. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think people, I mean, this is venturing well beyond your specific area of expertise, but I almost feel like people have it backwards. Like I feel like there's, uh, you know, we've, we're around the same age. We've seen a revolution in, um, gay rights and we've yeah. gone in 15 years from constitutional amendments, banning gay marriage, proposed ones, which I think some of my younger listeners won't even believe was a thing to where we are now, which is much better. It, to me, it seems much more likely that people have some gut level or social or otherwise icky and irrational homophobia and then they build a worldview around it than that they've like really looked at the issues rationally and the arguments rationally. And I I, don't, you think it's often more of a bottom up than a top down process? I mean, I think that's often the case. I mean, this is something that I, that I say like when, you know, when I'm talking about like the history of behavioral genetics and eugenics, it is not as if late 19th century Britain 
was this radically egalitarian anti-racist place. And then, and then genetics came along. Right? You know, and then genetics happened, yeah. right? It was definitely the causal arrow was going in the opposite direction, which was like, you know, how can we construct a moral apology for slavery? How can we justify like the continued immiseration and oppression of um, inherent to the class structure of Britain okay, now we're going to like come up with a bunch of ideas that support that. Um, This will probably be, would be a boring interview if I just agreed with you on everything. (laughs) And and this is a good segue to like, I tell me if I'm wrong, but I sensed in your book, you're, you're pretty open with the idea of, of, of research being in a sense politicized of being like, I am a researcher and I am an anti-racist or I'm an anti-racist researcher. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, it's, so I'm okay with being transparent about my own political ideology and my own moral commitments. Um, it's interesting about like, to what extent is that politicizing the research? Well, actually, you know what? I, I, instead of sort of, let me just state the question more plainly because I, you're right. The politi- everything's politicized. What isn't politicized? Um, what I'm getting at here is I, this is another area where my own views have evolved. Um, I am pretty influenced by a book, by Alice Drager called Galileo's Middle Finger that is about the intersection of um, activism and science and, and when they fight. And one of the points she makes, this is an icky subject and, and neither of, I don't think either of us has ever written much about it, but she talks about the debate over like whether it's uh, accurate to say that rape is about power rather than sex. Mm-hmm. And her argument is that this became sort of dogma in a lot of left-leaning academic and intellectual communities to the point where it interfered with uh, basically research into rape, which obviously we would like to know more about why rape occurs. My worry is, and I, I'm speaking from some experience here because I'm open about my own politics and, and write about science, is as soon as you say, I'm an anti-racist researcher or I'm, I'm an anti-racist psychological researcher, I'm a feminist psychology researcher, I'm a feminist journalist, it, it seems like you're broadcasting, I'm, I'm, I do this one thing, I'm also in this camp. And that camp comes with strings attached. And if you've... I, I just think it inherently pins you down or makes it harder to be open-minded. Is that overstating it? Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, I sort of think of it as like there, I mean, there's, there's trade-offs to everything, right? Like there's risks and benefits to everything. And I think you're right that there is a risk in, um, or there's potentially a risk, right? Like that we're back to like, you know, like which ideas are actually influential in the, in the real world with real audiences. But um, there is a risk that like by combining, this is how, like as a scientist who studies this, like this is my observation about like how we would go about testing like whether or not genetics influences children's executive functioning and combining that with like, I have read how to be an anti-racist and I consider myself a liberal and a Democrat um, and someone who's interested in equality. Does it undermine the kind of like unique authority that comes from science um, from the former to like, to kind of yoke it to these kind of ideological statements I think that's a risk. I think for this particular project, given that the ideas that I'm stating are widely perceived by my colleagues to be inherently antithetical to the moral commitments about which I'm being transparent, 
it was kind of necessary. Like, I think it wouldn't, I don't, one could have, but I could not have, I think, successfully written a book describing what it means for genes to cause differences in life outcomes that we care about and be taken seriously by colleagues that I respect without being transparent about my own political commitments. I, you know, like I, who knows if the book is going to be successful? Like it's already been, you know, really controversial in its reception. Um, and that is with, that is with me sort of advertising my like, um, team membership, (laughs) really like in a really transparent way throughout the whole book. So I think it would have been sort of impossible to get off the ground otherwise. I know you hold those views in earnest and you're not like pretending to be politically liberal, but in my experience, (laughs) like I've done some of the same thing of in some cases I'd even say larding my, my writing with assurances. I'm, I'm the good guy. I'm on the right side. I found to the extent that's done for pragmatic reasons, it just doesn't matter. People are going to read into it the the worst version possible of your argument or even create a ghost version of your argument that includes arguments you've never made, which I'm sure that's happened to you before. Yes. I mean, I've definitely seen the ghost version of the argument, um, which is really dislocating, right? Like it's, you know, I'm an academic in a controversial field. Like I started grad school when I was really young. I spent my whole life like in a, in a intellectual space in which like you argue with people and people critique you and like, um, and that did not prepare me for the last couple of weeks. And the reason why it didn't is because I'm used to the people arguing with me about what I actually said and claimed <laughs> and not arguing with me about, you know, like there was one review of the book and I was like, this is, I feel like, I feel like this is like gaslight. Like, I feel like this is kind of crazy making it so dislocating um, because there's, you know, tons of passages in here. It was like, Harden doesn't say this. And I'm like, I can, like, I mean, I could, like, take a picture with my iPhone of, like, the page where I literally said that. Um, And so that's a new element that I still have not really, I'm I'm still grappling with how to deal with that. Um, There's a new, um, you know, someone who's caused her own controversy recently, which I haven't really followed the specifics of, but Sally Rooney, her new novel has this passage where like one of the characters is seeing like, I keep meeting this version of the author and she's not me, but everyone thinks she's me. (laughs) And I just was like, I'm so stunned by that passage because that feeling of dislocation of people responding to like this, this, um, this authorial doppelganger that is not what you said. It's, it's really strange. And I'm still kind of grappling with how to deal with that. This, so this doppelganger basically says is in favor of sort of like hardline genetic determinism and believes that like, yeah. So it was like Harden naturalizes inequality rather than talking about the social structures that respond to genetic differences. That's and I was like, false. I literally argued the opposite. Like I literally, like I literally argued the, the exact opposite of that. Like, I don't know how to, deal with that criticism other than just keep on reiterating my point as clearly and as, um, as calmly as I can. Yeah. I laughed when you started describing that, not because it's unpleasant, but just because I remember that same thing of like, you sort of assume that the people talking about what you've written are invested in describing it accurately or that they've read it closely. And you very quickly find out that even 
some fairly big name people just don't do that. And it's sort of surprising because you'd like to, it's like, I have this like childlike sense of like, you could disagree with me, but our intellectual life should be such that you have to accurately describe what I wrote. <laughs> I know it's really, which it feels very naive when I say that out loud. Um, but I, you know, I, it's, it's not naive in the sense that like, you know, science, what's great about science at its best is it is a form of regulating what's grounds for an argument and what's not grounds for an argument. Like what counts as evidence? Um, how do you argue with people? Like what are the terms of debate? And I think it's really interesting moving from a world of like intellectual jousting that's always been done in the context of like conference proceedings or, you know, scientific reviews, um, grant panels to the kind of more general conversation um, where you learn that even your fellow scientists, when it's about like a quote unquote popular book, like will abandon what you kind of, what I kind of thought were like the rules of engagement a yeah. little bit. Um, so, you know, just, just how to, how to best, how to best learn from that and move forward is I think the thing that I'm still struggling with. Right. I, now. I was going to ask you about the potential similarities between what Twitter has done to scientific research and what it's done to journalism, because I mean, in both cases, the bright side is uh, overall, it's obviously good that like the random person who notices an error in an article or thinks a writer neglected something they shouldn't have neglected can just reach out directly and say to that writer, I think you, you fucked this up. I've also just noticed on the journalism side, especially just like you're saying, the level of bad faith and sort of, I don't know, pylons and everyone gleefully taking someone down without understanding what they said. I, do you think Twitter, has it been a net negative for your area of science or is it hard to sort of, is it not really a binary? I, you know, the short answer is I don't know. I have a real like deep ambivalent love hate relationship with Twitter. And the love part of it is that it has actually connected me to people that I wouldn't have otherwise known for my professional circles who are quite, um, you know, intellectually constructive and um, delightful and that I've learned a lot from. And so there's that kind of expansion of exposure to ideas, which can be quite good. Um, at the same time, there is just the psychological tax of, you know, even if you, even if you exercise some pretty good Twitter hygiene, in terms of blocking people and muting people and unfollowing people and not checking it and taking it off your phone and all the other things that I think many of us who have, you know, have kind of passed a certain level of Twitter followers do it's, it's still attention. Right. And so like everything is, again, there's trade-offs for everything. Like to the extent that you're paying attention to Twitter, what are you not paying attention to? Um, how to, how to, reap the benefits from broadening and opening to feedback without being kind of paralyzed by the amount of feedback that's communicated with such vitriol from people you don't know. Like the human mind, I think, is just not really equi equipped for that experience. Um, I, I think there's just real trade-offs there, and I'm still, I'm still trying to figure out what the best balance is for me kind of like dynamically moving forward. Um, one of my good friends here who I met on Twitter, actually, <laughs> uh, 
she did a really great thing recently, which is that she, she was like, now that you have had this, like this professional achievement, how are you renegotiating your boundaries? And I was like, oh my God, like what an amazing question to ask. Like, you know, now that you, now that you've engaged in this broader debate, like how are you changing your boundaries around how you engage? And I don't have a good answer for that yet, but I think it's something we have to be deliberate about. I think there's no way to say, say this without sounding obnoxious, but I think if you're lucky enough to reach a certain platform, you just need to really mostly divorce yourself from like day-to-day Twitter interaction or you're just going to go crazy. Cause it's just like, yeah, I think that might be true. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was funny cause um, you know, the journalist from the New Yorker who I worked with on that profile piece is not on Twitter and very deliberately. This is Gideon Lewis Krauss, right? Great piece. Yeah, so people this should is read Gideon it. Um, who is, a, you know, such a fantastic writer. And when he first reached out to me, I was like, I totally know who you are, right? Like, I, re- you know, I've read so many of your pieces in the past. Um, but it was interesting to see, you know, as his piece broke, what is it like to follow that piece as a journalist who's not on Twitter very deliberately versus what is it like to follow it as the, you know, as the subject of the piece who is on Twitter? Um, it was like this little, like, um when natural experiment yeah yeah exactly so um so what i ended up doing honestly is i i gave my phone to my boyfriend and he changed my twitter password and locked me out for like four straight days and like and like that was actually like very good like uh twitter hygiene for that week sometimes you you just have to do that it's just not it's not healthy otherwise um I guess let's circle before we wrap this up, circle back to one more. I'm obviously am interested in the social media and the controversy, all that, but I do want to ask you about, you see a lot of denial that there even is a thing called IQ that is useful or predictive or that or G <laughs> yeah. is sort of the general variable for intelligence. What's your sort of like, if you want to equip people to respond to those arguments, which are very common, what what should they say? Um, I mean, I, it doesn't take much in terms of a, like a literature review to see that IQ measures things more than just how you do an IQ test. Um, and not just things in the educational domain. Um, like obviously IQ tests are tapping the types of cognitive skills that are also selected for in formal education. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that like performance on IQ tests is correlated with going further in school. Um, I think that like maybe the most compelling results come from the Lothian birth cohort, which is this sample of kids who were all tested on IQ tests in a province in Scotland. And then the psychologist Ian Deary sort of dug up the records and recontacted them. And what you see is that like IQ test performance at age 11 predicts all cause mortality. You know, how long do people live? And it does so even when you are controlling for socioeconomic status. So, you know, kids who come from equivalently affluent or, or non-affluent social backgrounds, IQ still is affecting how long they live or is at least related to how long they live. Um, you know, we care about that even if we don't care about the grades that people, you know, make in school or how long they go in school. So the, the subject of IQ is back to this 
valued versus valuable distinction. You know, it was an idea really deliberately propagated that intelligence of the sort that's measured on formal IQ tests um, didn't just equip people with a certain set of skills that were useful in certain sort of contexts, but like it made people inherently more valuable people. Um, and s- the challenge then as a psychologist in this area is how to communicate what is true. Testing people on these skills predicts outcomes that we care about and what isn't true. Um, which is that, you know, that old eugenic idea that IQ tests are somehow a measure of someone's like inherent worth or, or. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you, you use the, the word not, uh, phrase not true to describe that. But I think what, what I think people get confused about is the idea that like, that's a matter of our, our values as a culture, as a people, whether or not we value people Mm -hmm. lower IQs. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just not. I don't think any amount of empirical evidence one way or another can tell us how to treat other people. And I think people sometimes think that yeah. there's a straight line from empirical findings to values. Yes. I mean, I think this is, I I think that this is absolutely true. Like I, you know, I use the example in my book of deafness, which obviously has a much simpler in some cases and uncontested genetic architecture than something like um, the intelligence tested on IQ tests. Um, you know, deafness has also been the subject of eugenic atrocity. Like the Nazis were not kind to people who were deaf. Um, but we can as a society say, like, this is how we treat other people. This is how we respect their dignity and their citizenship, their participation in our common civic and economic life. And the Americans with Disabilities Act as a piece of legislation that's about, like, we cannot... It, equalize necessarily, you know, whether or not you're, um, you know, transducing sound waves into your brain, but we will equalize your ability to enjoy and have access to places of public accommodation. So I think that that, that distinction between, um, you know, is something, a difference in functioning versus, is something a difference in functioning across which we refuse to relate to each other as equals. That's the distinction that I think is a, that's a moral distinction. That's a political distinction. That's not something that any psychological study is going to solve for you. Maybe it's just like a matter of sort of proximity. Like, like, you know, it's easier for people to attack you and try to take you down and criticize your work than it is to actually figure out a way to improve our welfare system or, or I mean, public policy <laughs> is incredibly complicated, especially in our country. And we've sort of been in uh, stalemate on a lot of fronts for decades now, if not backsliding. Yeah. I mean, I like, I, I, there's so much going on there. It's a hard problem, right? Like how do you, we, we as Americans are deeply attached to, our ideas of merit and deservingness. And I personally think that as someone who spent a lot of time studying the impact of, you know, morally or arbitrary luck on child development outcomes, um, I've had to question a lot of those assumptions about merit and deservingness. And so with this book, I'm asking people to do 
I'm asking a lot of people, right? Like I'm asking them to, um, to think about like the difference between genetic difference and eugenic inferiority and superiority. I'm asking them to see some ideas that they associate with being on the opposite team in a really politically, you know, ideologically polarized world. And at the end of the, you know, by the end of the book, I'm like, what does this actually mean for how we, how we think about like the appropriate basis of economic inequality in this country, right? Like it's a, it's a lot to try to pack into a book. So I do think it's easier for people to be like, whatever genes don't matter and pages a Nazi than it is to actually engage with, you know, what I'm asking people to do. And you're saying you're not a, not like official member of the American Nazi party. <laughs> I shockingly, <laughs> you forgot to pay your dues. So no, uh, okay. <laughs> actual last question. Cause that, this ties nicely into one of my favorite observations from your book was that, uh, this idea of grit, grit was presented. I did a chapter on it. I'm biased against it. I think the science of it was overblown, but the idea is, um, it isn't just sort of innate intelligence that affects how kids do in the classroom. There's also grit, how hard, how long they will stick with problems that are difficult. Uh, it's basically a, a version of a flavor of resilience. Um, I love that you pointed out that it was sort of just taken as a given that intelligence is innate, but grit isn't. You point out there's no reason to think grit doesn't also have a strong genetic component. What, what do you think it reveals that people just assume when we talk about people's capacity for hard work, that must not have that, that sort of volitional. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it, it relates to the ways in which we kind of slip back and forth between the two definitions of merit. Right. And one is around like, Oh, like whatever traits just happen to like work for your ability to do this job or like be allocated this experience uh, and you can benefit from it. And the other is really this kind of like, Protestant work ethic, moral deservingness view of merit. It's definitely true that some people, it was a, such a marketable idea that people just sort of, uh, it was like Play-Doh for a lot of people. They shaped it into whatever was convenient for them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing about a lot of psychological ideas is that, you know, they can, they can be expandable to fit many people's needs in un, in un um, anticipatable ways sometimes. Anything I should have asked you or anything else you want to uh, say about the book before we wrap this up? Um, no, I'm, you know, I'm just really excited for people to, to read it. I think the first couple, you know, reactions are always the ones that are like closest to a topic and the strongest. Um, whereas a big part of my motivation in writing this was to bring these ideas to a broader audience. And so I'm just really curious to see, you know, what parts of it people resonate with and are have questions about and push back about, um, you know, as the conversation gets, uh, broader. So I'm looking forward to that. Not to end on a negative note, but, but a, I do recommend the book, but I would also, uh, anyone who does read it, I really would invite you to compare what page actually wrote with what people are saying online about what she wrote. Uh, and then just frankly ask whether these are trustworthy commentators in general. Cause I think it's, I don't know. I just, I don't think it's, I think we agree on this. It's not too much to ask people to respond to the actual text that was written rather than a a ghost version of it. And no, I'm not speaking from any personal experience here at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you very much, Paige. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to Paige Harden, uh, 
all kinds of links in the show notes if you want to learn more about her work and her book. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, Jesse. Um, I never thought that there would be a reason for us to have a geneticist on this show, but I guess internet bullshit really affects everybody, including actual scientists. Internet bullshit is one of those subjects that just pops up everywhere, and that's very good for us. <laughs> Thank you, bullshit. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single. And if you're at a bar and it's after last call, my only advice to you is go back to your hood. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, if you're interested in applying for the job, the hierarchy is me at the top and then you and then Jesse. <laughs> <laughs>